0: What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Set Scene Shot. Today, we're getting into a film we saw this week called Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. It's currently available for rent on Amazon Prime and free on Hulu if you have that premium subscription. This kinky film depicts the true origin story of an American icon, Wonder Woman, who is widely inspired by her author's polyamorous relationship and their engagement in BDSM. Strap in figuratively, and let's talk about the themes, historical context, and technical details which make or break this film.
1: Alright, so to give everyone a quick summary of the film before we dive in, um, it's based on a true story which chronics the professional and personal life of psychologist Bill Marston, his colleague and wife Elizabeth, and their mutual lover, Olive Byrne. Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman centers on the marginalized story of the polyamorous relationship the three share, while also touching on their professional developments, which are associated with Bill Marston's name, those being disk theory, the lie detector test, and the Wonder Woman comic. The film begins in a psychology classroom at Harvard, detailing how Bill and Elizabeth crave to understand dominance, inducement, submission, and compliance, which is disk theory. The viewers soon discover that the two are also working on inventing a mechanism to detect when an individual is lying. Olive joins their quest as a teacher's assistant, and her bodily reactions give the Marstons the key to detecting lies through human physiology. The rest of the film depicts their unconventional love story, which challenges the social constructs of the world around them. The relationship between Bill and the two women he loves motivates him to write Wonder Woman as an homage to Elizabeth and Olive, as he draws inspiration from the two individually and their sexual experiences as a polyamorous unit. The film displays compelling visual connections between the three's engagement with BDSM and panels from the original Wonder Woman comic.
0: Wonder Woman in itself was a BDSM-inspired feminist character at its start, and I think it was really impressive to me that this story is very much not published, and it was definitely new to me in a lot of ways. So I think it was interesting to use his relationship and the women that surrounded him as a way to explore the true origin story of Wonder Woman, which is kind of hilarious in a comic book sense. So yeah, I guess we'll get into some themes now, particularly one that I think underlies the majority of the film is something called Disc Theory. Kiki already mentioned really what disc theory is, but I think what's important to notice here is that disc theory underlies the structure of the film, separating it into phases. So in the film, they have these like chalkboard moments where they have Bill up on the chalkboard writing out aspects of disc theory. One thing I think the film didn't do super great is touch on what exactly is disc theory. And I think the intention of that was to mostly have it be explained through the film i don't know what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah i agree i left the film wondering what disc theory even was but i think you're right i think they used bdsm and sexual desire to kind of outline it
0: yeah so when disc theory was initially created it wasn't created by marston but he was one who added much to the actual kind of overall canon that it underlay. So it was created as a behavior assessment tool, and it's still done today. Most often, it's actually seen in like business uh, productivity strategies. So the four parameters when it was first introduced, as we already said, were dominance, inducement, submission, and compliance. And Marston believed that these four things were distillations of people's emotions and their sense of self. Uh, alongside how they viewed their interactions with their environment. This really came from two specific dimensions, whether or not a person views their environment as favorable or unfavorable, and whether a person perceives themselves as having a control or lack of control over their environment. So, based upon those two underlying dimensions, we get dominance, inducement, submission, and compliance. And to me, when I first hear them, inducement and compliance are words that we're not regularly used to hearing alongside dominance and submission. So I'm gonna run through a quick definition for all of them. Dominance reflects the power or influence over others, while inducement reflects a thing that persuades or influences someone to do something. One thing I was thinking about a lot is, how would you see the difference between dominance and inducement?
1: To me, inducement sounds a little more passive where dominance sounds more active. Like you would actively be dominating someone as opposed to inducing someone seems not as forward or like something with like an underlying motivation.
0: Yeah, kind of like a manipulative strategy in some ways, but I think in this framing, it's more of a neutral term. And then submission was defined as the action or fact of accepting or yielding the will of another, and compliance is the act in accordance with a wish or command. What I think is interesting is that you can easily recognize that dominance and inducement are separated from submission and compliance based upon whether a person perceives themselves as having a control or lack of control of their environment. And so I think it's interesting to kind of use these as tenets of explaining personality and emotion. In recent times, DISC has changed, but is still present. So instead, they're reduced down into dominance, influence, steadiness, and conscientiousness. So three of the four have been changed in modern times. Just to kind of give you an overview, dominance is a person who places emphasis on accomplishing results or the bottom line. They see the big picture, are blunt, and they accept challenge and are straight to the point. So that one I think stays fairly in line with the movie. Yeah. But then the second one, inducement has been changed to influence. So this, again, is a person who places emphasis on influencing or persuading others. Uh, They show enthusiasm, they're optimistic, they like to collaborate, and they dislike being ignored. Steadiness replaces submission. Uh, That's a person that doesn't like to be rushed. They approach things with a calm manner and supportive actions. And then conscientiousness is a person who places emphasis on quality and accuracy, expertise, and competency. They enjoy their independence, they believe in objective reasoning, they want those details and they fear being wrong.
1: I feel like this renaming, reamping of discs definitely desexualizes it.
0: Yeah. It was probably a result of the like Freudian philosophies that were pretty heavy in the nineteen thirties, nineteen forties still. Yeah. Definitely changes now. Humans are not so altered by their sexual portions, but uh still definitely a factor. To me, this kind of plays into this ideology that When you're creating a biopic or something that's based on a true story, do you opt for historical accuracy or do you create the movie around the modern audience? So to kind of give an example of what this is, it'd be like acknowledging that today's standards for a lot of movies of what is, you know, a racial slur have changed based upon the times. And so if you were being historically accurate, you would refer to, you know, somebody of color in a different manner. If you were trying to replicate the 1940s, than if you were doing it in the present. And so I think what they show here by using the disc theory from previous and not changing the disc tenants to match what they are now uh, is showing that they are going for some historic accuracy, which I think is important to Wonder Woman and where she came from in the SM background. That being said, do you have any like initial reactions to? This theory, do you think it's like something that's valid? Uh, would you apply these things to your own life in any way?
1: I think yes. I mean, I think in, in some ways it's valid. My mind doesn't necessarily, like I don't tend to try to categorize my behaviors when I notice change.
0: Do you think a person could be classified into one of these four characters? Or are they more spectrum-based, that you're constantly shifting based upon your environment? Or is it something that you carry continuously?
1: I don't know. I mean. I think that everyone can ebb and flow between these four behaviors. However, is that what disc theory is? Or is it you are confined to one behavior?
0: According to Marston in his original, it was that um, these four parameters illustrate people's emotions and were distilled by their sense of self and their interactions with the environment. So I think it is something that you can bend people into. And that their sense of self combined with their environment affects mm-hmm. how they'll behave. Your sense of self, for the most part, doesn't change like on a day-to-day basis hugely, yeah. Yeah. but your environment changes. So perhaps there are different portions of discourse which are applicable based upon the environment that you're in.
1: Yeah, and perhaps people fall, you know, maybe majority in one category and then the others are minor.
0: Yeah. The way this is presented in the film is disc separates the structure of the film. And I thought this was interesting because it basically creates a linear template for the portions of disc that each subsection of this story can be put into a dominance phase, an inducement phase, etc., etc. While all of the characters also exhibit particular things of this disc, which I think in a lot of ways is confusing because... The film paints several of the different characters as dominant or submissive, and that's like a defining character trait that's reinforced, but the actual film showcases how this relationship between all of them is dynamic and kind of goes through these phases. I don't know if it's necessarily concrete in what it's trying to portray about disc theory, as much as this is kind of gets a little tacky and is like, okay, you were trying to do a separation tactic and also use it to help with character development, but... How well did it work? Not super great. The things I wanna wanna touch on here, if we really looked into how dominance is portrayed in the film, this starts with the two professors. You have the verbal attack on Olive when she first comes in, and then morphs into an inducement factor. And it's interesting to me that most of these are like the professors as one party, and then Olive as the other party. So in the first portion, they're trying to dominate. Olive force her to you know come into their things or tell her not to do certain things and then it starts to be more of an inducement thing where uh, they're asking her to join their project and making it more of her will so they're trying to change the environment to make her want to do things versus when you're dominant you don't really care if it's a positive or negative environment.
1: Yes I agree and I think that duality between the Marstons and Olive slowly crumbles as we get further along into the film, because we start to see Bill and Elizabeth more as individuals rather than a unit.
0: So then moving on to the next phase of the story, we get into submission portion. And I think for a while, she's like heavily resisting. Like she is joining them to do certain things. It's kind of interesting to see the uh, inducement portion when they're in the sorority house. And that's a scene that I'm still a little like, why was that included?
1: yeah. That was hard because it, in a lot of ways it was inducement, but it was also definitely submission.
0: Well, and it seems that was used as a foreshadowing element so that she would be like, yeah, this seems more believable that she'd be into BDSM because she yeah. is getting pleasure out of this. Yeah. But at the same time, it seemed forced, and they had done very little with sorority and fraternity. But again, this becomes hard because this is a depiction of real life not of some fantasy world where every minute detail is tweaked in order to make something more symbolic, but interesting inclusion of that scene. That being said, once she decides to submit to her feelings, then she kind of goes along with them, and they move in together, and they start raising a family. I think it was pretty interesting also the moment where they're basically like, oh, you have a kid. And then like everything changes because Elizabeth basically loses her dominant position.
1: When Olive is pregnant. Yeah. Oh.
0: Which is contrary because yeah. it seems like the end of the film builds towards Elizabeth, like never backing down.
1: Yeah. Well, and even in the beginning of the movie, she is like the most dominant.
0: Yeah. Compliance refers to the ending uh, where she basically is like, the only way I'm coming back is if you two comply and essentially bend the knee. And here you kind of get this reversal in that so much of the three first phases were revolving with the two professors had an idea and they wanted Olive to kind of go with them. And so she's the subject of dominance, of inducement, and of submission. But suddenly it flips in the last phase that the professors are the ones that are having to do the compliance aspects. And I think, again, this is them trying to leverage this story to make it more impactful yeah. but also it seems fairly forced
1: fairly forced and even like i don't know if a majority of audiences would have picked this up as well as you did
0: right and i think that's partially but partially it's like these small details are what makes when a character has a change of heart it makes them more believable did the structure work for you? Did you enjoy the parallelization of disc theory to the story of the Marstons, Or did you feel like it was something that didn't really work for you? Did it, did it add to the story at all?
1: It's hard because I think in some ways, yeah, I can appreciate what they were going for. And there was definitely sectioning off of the film into these different phases from those blackboard moments that you mentioned, where Bill is writing on the blackboard the word. And it's like, okay, well, now we're going to look at this and the following scenes but again i left the film kind of being like i don't know what disc theory is so i feel like the vision was there i don't think they necessarily hit it right on the head but i can see it and after you explained it like yeah i get it but it was still a little like okay
0: i don't think like the relationship is clear-cut enough so part of this was that it was a biopic And that they can't craft things particularly how they want to in order to strengthen the execution as much as it could be. Which, you know, we live in an an ideal world.
1: Yeah, pros and cons.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about the characters. Mm -hmm. And like we've mentioned, Elizabeth is painted as a dominant and is admitted to be a dominant throughout the film. Mm -hmm. Bill is a submissive. And did you think it was interesting that in the beginning, he's framed as being more of a dominant. And only in the final acts do you really get this like clear definition of who is a dominant and who is a submissive.
1: Yes. So I also thought that Bill was definitely depicted as a dominant right from the get-go. And it wasn't until later that his character kind of breaks down a little bit and we kind of see him as more of a submissive. And again, maybe that's why I didn't totally buy the disc theory paralleling the story thing because it wasn't as clear-cut from the start?
0: Talking about disc theory as a use of kind of paralleling the structure, disc theory also I think portrays a pretty heavy portion in the personalities that are depicted for each of the characters, particularly in reference to their BDSM tendencies. So throughout the show, Elizabeth is painted as a dominant, and I think she's the most constant character and in that way, it gives the most sincere performance at the end where she has to make a change and come away from being dominant because she's been so convincingly dominant throughout this entire movie. Versus Bill, who I think is a little bit more convoluted and I think purposefully convoluted in that at some point, C of e's appears very dominant and this could be partially due to the environment. But when he's with the two women he loves, he's very submissive, even coming down to all of the BDSM acts that happen throughout the film. One thing that I think is interesting is that they never clearly label Olive. My question to you then is why did they never label what Olive is doing?
1: Um, I don't know.
0: Where do you, where would you put Olive on the spectrum?
1: I mean, she kind of fluxes between a few different behaviors The last scene, she could be portrayed as a dominant because she ultimately changes the other's behaviors quite directly.
0: I don't know, though. I thought this was an interesting point to leave out because I think overall Olive's character is the most poorly developed.
1: It is very poorly developed.
0: I wonder if you having a hard time identifying what you think she is is potentially just a result of her poor character development. But I agree in the sense that I think her character changes over time. I think she definitely doesn't start as a dominant and she starts more in the compliant phase where she's willing to comply with the wishes of others. And maybe that's why the scene with the paddles included uh, to kind of show that she's in a compliance phase. Regardless, whatever she is or whatever you view her to be, I think it is confusing that you have characters that are going through or expressing different phases of disc theory while you have this linear disc portions of the film. Yes. Not not a huge fan of that construction. Didn't think it worked too great, but definitely an interesting character development.
1: Yeah, I agree. It didn't work super great, but they, they really did try hard. They tried to implement DISC into a bunch of different aspects of the films, including BDSM, kind of like you mentioned. But in the film, uh, Bill actually visits a French tailor in New York City who introduces him to... This whole underground world of SNM and BDSM that's kind of going on. He brings them home to them, shows them, and is like, look, we can identify dominance, inducement, submission, and compliance in these photos. And, you know, maybe it was also an introduction that, like, other people are doing these things, too, that we're engaging in. So we can have, like, some sort of a community around it. However, the active participation in BDSM in tandem with homosexuality also keys the viewer in to the association this film is creating with Foucaultian thought. So those familiar with philosophy, psychology, and social theory will quickly become aware of the copious references to Michel Foucault in this film. So for those of you who don't know, Foucault was a French philosopher, cultural theorist, historian, critic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He did a lot of writing. Who was active in the 70s, mainly. But a lot of his writings reference earlier decades. And he looks specifically at the modern age up to the mid-20th century. So up to right when this film was created. Not when this film was created, but the story was created. Right, up to where the film takes place. Yeah. But Foucault is like this revolutionary theorist. He's praised in all sorts of disciplines of academia because he takes such an intersectional approach to his thought and he has a wide-ranging discourse that's applicable to a variety of disciplines. His theories are really approachable and really applicable to a lot of different areas of study. Some of his most well-known work comes from his book Discipline and Punish, The Birth of the Prison which analyzes the social and theoretical mechanisms behind the changes that occurred in the Western penal system from the Middle Ages up to the modern age. So again, it's history based, right? So he takes this history of the Western penal system, extrapolates and applies it to contemporary Western life. And he talks about how the organization of prisons all applies to social construction and the relationship between individuals and society. And his contextualization of this work specifically is very compelling and is actually a really good segue into his History of Sexuality, which is a book he published after Discipline and Punish. It's this grand study of sexuality in the Western world. And in it, he includes his Repressive Hypothesis which is the idea that Western society suppressed sexuality from the 17th to the mid-20th century due to the rise of capitalism. And from this, we get BDSM.
0: How does porn fit into that?
1: Mm, Well, see, that's a whole other discussion. Because porn comes in when we have the invention of the camera and the video camera. But then you get into the whole thing of what's the difference between art and porn? Like people have been painting nudes and sculpting nudes for 2000 years, but no one was ever like, this is porn until the camera was invented. When the cameras invented, you can take pictures of live bodies and suddenly it becomes an issue. It's a question of like when live bodies are at play, that's when things get kind of blurry.
0: When the statue of David was done, Mm -hmm. why is it was he a live body?
1: So so in the renaissance, right, because we're talking about Michelangelo's David, they would study male bodies. It was it was appropriate for men to pose nude and for artists to study the body. That was appropriate, but that was for the purposes of art. But it is hard. That's such a huge discussion of where is the line between porn and art? Like if you ask me, you can't really make that distinction. Yeah. So Foucault argues that repressed sexuality happened in Western society due to the rise of capitalism. Mm. And in this, right, you're repressed. In homosexual circles, BDSM emerged because they were not only required to repress themselves sexually, but their way of living was illegal. And so to kind of relieve some of that tension, they engaged in like sadomasochism to relieve this oppression that they felt. Foucault also builds off of Freudian sexual theory by claiming that sexuality as a discursive object is separate from life. So it's this idea that one's sexuality is a key part to your identity. And he also claims that this is a very recent development in the West, that it was not always this way, which I agree with completely. So ultimately... This idea that sexuality in all its forms is a social construct is associated with Foucault more than with any other theorist. Really influential guy, and a lot of these threads we can pull through this film, I think. And we can begin with the behaviors of the three main characters when it is learned by the viewer that they have fallen in love. Um, And they discipline themselves to keep their relationship hidden. To the extent that they lie about their living situation to their neighbor, they're fired from their job. They lie about the social roles that each of them take on for fear of social punishment. Foucault would argue that this is analogous to the prisoner actively monitoring his behavior when he believes the prison warden is watching him. So this is just one way how he can see this play out. I think what's really compelling here in terms of Foucault is the film's growing focus on BDSM that the trio partake in to demonstrate not only that it's a key inspiration to the Wonder Woman comic, but it's also a direct reference to Foucault here. Because a unifying theme of Foucault's work has to do with power in relationships and the relationship between sex and power... This includes BDSM entirely, which again, Foucault claims emerged in homosexual circles when sexuality was being repressed to relieve some of that tension. He doesn't only theorize about this, but he also participated in the SNM subculture of the 1970s.
0: So for you, this film is a exemplification of Foucault's ideas.
1: In some ways, yeah. I left the film and throughout the entire film, I was like, this has Foucault written all over it. Like, it's screaming Foucault.
0: That being said, though, I think it's interesting that they used Wonder Woman as a point of accessibility. So a story about Foucault maybe would be less engaging to the common viewer than something that's based around a comic that a lot of people know and have come to love. And and the BDSM objects are the handcuffs or the, the wrists, whatever they're called, and yeah. the whip and all of these special things. One thing that I think is interesting in my eyes, is the usage of the truth lasso mm-hmm. and how it stands for something The what is the relationship between truth and BDSM and honesty in BDSM? Because in some ways the lasso is a whip and that in itself is a way of tying people up, which is a BDSM inspired motif, but the lie detector is not. And so what is the role of honesty in any relationship that utilizes these sexual tools
1: then from there you look at the wonder woman comic and you're like well is it that kinky
0: well i think in common portrayals i think it's just hilarious now if you look at like the modern wonder woman i recently thought for the first time and so when i saw it it's so popularized right yeah but i think it's almost a hilarious twist that a lot of people who probably celebrate and love wonder woman maybe not super into or know the roots of BDSM. And and even as you start to, you know, you see the depiction and you make the connections of, oh, wow, Wonder Woman really has a lot of things that carry her as a symbol of S&M. It brought common entry point that is easy to see in society and a lot of people know Wonder Woman but also then created a complexity to this character which most people don't necessarily think about. Good on them for finding this story and making it available to people. On that regard I think like people should be watching this. A lot of times the like fluff comics like Spider-Man or Superman or Batman are not associated with being very politically heavy. But that aside... What what's the analysis of like comics as you yourself labeled them as low hanging fruit for the most part?
1: Well, I I am not labeling them as I'm wondering if that's how they were received in the 40s because yeah. they were how so do you accessible. Them now? Oh, now I think they're totally highbrow art. You think so? Yeah, Persepolis.
0: Okay, so you're taking like an academic viewpoint to this. I'm talking like Spider Man.
1: Oh. Well, I don't know. I don't I haven't really read a Spider-Man comic if I'm going to be completely real. Why is that? I don't know. I didn't grow up with them. I feel like a lot of times people are introduced to comics when they're young. And it's not like my parents read comics.
0: You never really read comics growing up?
1: No. I did not. As an adult though, and as someone who studies art, like I think from like what I've read in the form of like comic, it's really compelling. You can do a lot with narrative. I obviously think you can do a lot with visuals. And I think it adds a lot to stories if you're going for like a narrative. But yeah, I don't know because I I never really entered the realm of comics ever. Sure. I think you make a really good point. But then what did you think of the scenes when people are burning the Wonder Woman comics?
0: Were those Wonder Woman? I yeah. thought they were a different comic.
1: No, they were Wonder Woman.
0: I think it's sad. But also like people don't like things that are foreign to them.
1: Well, do you know why they were burning them?
0: Probably because it associated them with something that they weren't necessarily in support of or were unaware of.
1: Yeah. So the decade after World War II, so kind of the 40s into the 50s, it was, you know, obviously still suppressive of homosexuality. But there was also a big push by a lot of Americans to kind of advocate for decency, and they would attack a lot of parts of popular culture that did not align with these values. Many comics, not only Wonder Woman, were accused of promoting deviant behavior and they were burned as a result of it.
0: Ah, so a lot of comics. Which comics were like pretty big in this time? Was it uh, like Marvel and
1: DC? I think so, yeah. Huh. Yeah. So that was a common thing because this huge war just happened and people are feeling a need to, like, reform a lot of society. And in the case of Wonder Woman, puritanical beliefs could be rightly interpreted because the panels that were presented in the film to the viewer were pretty kinky. There was a lot of phallic visuals. The film did a good job at paralleling, like, BDSM and the comic.
0: You get a good sense of why they're saying the comic was inspired to be BDSM.
1: Well, another thing that's interesting, too, is the 50s in america was the rise of capitalism in the united states because the 50s is largely defined by consumer culture and with world war ii ending in 1945 this is right at that point
0: was capitalism used as something to basically inject the economy to try and stimulate the economy post-war
1: i don't know for sure probably to some extent yes it Hmm. could also be yeah to just rebuild the american economy because we lost a lot so it was like support your country and buy things that are American made.
0: Yeah. And I wonder how much the next period following COVID, because I mean, obviously the economy yeah. has been doing really weird things.
1: Yeah, it really has been.
0: And I think it's kind of interesting how there's like a definite job loss, but the economy also has been doing okay, actually pretty well of recent. Mm-hmm. And so it'll be interesting to see when people come out of COVID, we'll enter a new age again of buying.
1: Yeah. Honestly, probably.
0: Everyone's just buying lots of Purell.
1: A ton of purel Clorox.
0: Yeah. I think it's always hilarious, too, looking back upon things that like concerts or like shared drinks at parties that you would never think about before, but now are like horror films. Yeah. Maybe they should make a Midsummer about germs.
1: <laughs> Midsummer about germs. Last note on the historical context here that I want to make is the scenes where people in the neighborhoods are burning the Wonder Woman comics. You know, if we can understand that to be as a result of post-World War II ideologies and wanting to reform society and they're being offended that this comic is so sexual and so kinky and whatever, and they're going to burn it. That was all, you know, this is fiction. Like the, the comics are fiction. So let alone in real life where Bill, Elizabeth, and Olive are participating in these same behaviors Like, that has to be frightening for them. And so that really, I think the film did a good job of presenting how hard it was to navigate these hurdles and obstacles for the three just in order to live authentically. It just shows, like, if people in in the community were so offended by something that was fiction, what would they have thought if they knew their next door neighbor was participating in the same thing?
0: Yeah. We're going to talk about the technical aspects of the film now. Specifically, we're going to talk about the aspects and the scene sets and shots. Plug plug the plug right there. And this is going to separate more of the actual execution and the technical execution from the actual storyline. So a lot of the analysis so far have been about things that have been brought up, whether it be Foucault or disc theory. But now we're going to look more into... What exactly made up this movie and did it work on a technical perspective or what were the elements that they were trying to utilize? And then what was our take on the actual functionality of those things? So first thing that we want to talk about is the acting wasn't always convincing in particular like at the core of the story. It's a love story. Why did you think the acting wasn't always convincing?
1: I mean, I just thought it was kind of poor and like I think we can couple acting and the script writing here when there was a lot of awkward dialogue between individuals. There was a lot of like inorganic cutoffs and weird sentencing or weird phrasing that didn't feel real to me. The actors all of his fiance, I thought he did such a bad job at like being convincing. And like when he was acting, I was like, this is just bad acting.
0: Yeah, I swear I've seen that actor play a fraternity boy for like four different movies at really? this point. Oh, that's which kind is of hilarious. Funny. Yeah. But I agree with you. I think I'd like to get a little bit more into what specifics you didn't feel were convincing. Part of it for me I think was just the development of Olive and the acting from the character playing Olive as well uh, wasn't particularly powerful in the sense that you feel a lot more attachment to the Marstons, specifically Elizabeth versus Olive, which I think is showcasing the actors and actresses' ability to embody the characters and really give them meaning. But again, juxtapose that against maybe there's just not a lot known about this character and they were trying to be more historically accurate.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think Rebecca Hall, who plays Elizabeth, did the best job of acting. The caliber with which Hall provided was not matched by the other two actors. And it was to the extent that, like, Bill's character, for example... The entire time, I couldn't tell if he was like a feminist or a misogynist. And I, you know, after reading a bit of Bill Marston, the person's biography after the film, who seems pretty progressive and with it, I think I could liken that to poor acting.
0: Yeah. I think what also would have helped is better chemistry between the actors. Yeah. I think for having it be a love story, I think the, the hardest part was the convincing nature of each of their relationships. Because you had to basically define relationships between each of the characters, so three total relationships. And I really didn't feel like that was done to a point where it was super convincing. I was more attached to Bill and Elizabeth's relationship than either of their relationships to Olive at any point.
1: Yeah, I think they had okay chemistry, and I thought Elizabeth and Olive had okay chemistry.
0: I'm going to disagree with you here. I think that their chemistry, in particular on screen, wasn't effective because the foreshadowing of being in love seems so forced. Like the eye contact, the lingering nature, it was almost so obvious that it was, it seemed tacky to me.
1: Yeah, well, and there were a lot of things that were obvious to the point that seemed tacky.
0: The next one that we want to talk about is the direction in the production. I think... While the story is interesting about the parallels to Wonder Woman, what I thought was very forced was the production elements to showcase where the elements of Wonder Woman came from, just starting with the bracelets. So Olive is often depicted wearing these silver bracelets that look very reminiscent of the Wonder Woman cuffs. And it just got to a point where it was like, we don't need to have a direct replicate to make this accessible
1: yeah it was like every scene and they were huge
0: the other thing that i think goes to show this is that the sex scene shop where she essentially comes out wearing a lot of gear that makes her just look like wonder woman i got the intent of the shot to really show the parallel but i think they had done a good job up to this point showcasing where the different elements of wonder woman had come from That they didn't need to have this like aha moment for the viewer. And instead, it came off as more beating a dead horse. Again, with the sex shop scene, I think another element which came across as more tacky was the lighting. So in a lot of these scenes, they use this very dreamlike yellow lighting, which showcased very good silhouettes. And I didn't necessarily think it matched the palette of the film or was used in ways that made it meaningful or thoughtful. It just seemed like something that somebody came in and was like, oh, this looks interesting, let's go with this silhouette shot. But not a lot of thought put into it, which I think could have been, they could have done more uh, with those scenes.
1: I agree, and I, I think the inconsistencies in like basic set production, like lighting, it doesn't unify the film. We always need unity in art, so I think that was definitely missing. In terms of aesthetics, like, there was nothing special about the way the camera was used, the way shots were set up. It was a lot of conventional film tactics. Um, like, for example, the camera was fairly still for a majority of the movie, but when it's discovered that the finding out of their relationship is affecting their children, suddenly the camera is shaky for like two scenes. And then it is back to a still cam. And it was like, we get the intent, but like, again, it was inconsistent.
0: Yeah. I think the other place they tried to do it was in some of the scenes where they're showcasing that a love is forming with the zooms and the pan ins on different characters um, that emphasize they're looking at each other. But again, it wasn't anything special, but it also wasn't like a huge contribution to making the film more meaningful.
1: There was also not a lot of attention to composition like color movement or any of these like art or design elements that are present in a lot of independent
0: yeah and I also think there wasn't any attention played to comic book nature of things like the way that you do animation or movement comic books have a very stylistic form I'm surprised they didn't use more of that kind of comic book nature to emphasize certain points about the film and to just you know show that this was something that came from a superhero film missed opportunity but also requires a lot more money to do something like that
1: well like what do you think how necessary are aesthetics to a film that is intentionally supposed to be narrative driven and narrative focused
0: i mean i think a well-rounded film has the ability to navigate both spheres well Like, for example, Parasite is a movie that's narratively driven, but has consistent color palettes, has aesthetics that are pleasing, but are also able to portray and reinforce the ideas of the film. And I think when you have all those elements come together, the film is more meaningful for the viewer in the long run.
1: Yeah, well, and it makes the case more compelling.
0: One thing I think that I thought was interesting was how they had to deal with portraying an alternative love story. And so often, two-dimensional shots are built around two people. How often do we have three people that are all interacting together? Going back to the sex scene where they had Will on the bottom, her in the middle, and they used the silhouette. It almost seems like it was a tactic to have three people showing intimacy between three people if you were to do that in a 2d space or just like from a camera perspective someone would always be hidden and if you think about the shots to try and portray this they use the bed a lot so the scene where will and elizabeth are in bed and they're facing up towards the camera and then uh, olive gets in the bed and they all face sideways almost all of the scenes were set up in a way that you could clearly still visualize all three people And so I think that was an interesting challenge to have to tackle in this film is how do you visually depict a polyamorous relationship from a film standpoint so that it still feels intimate to the viewer and it still feels genuine?
1: Yeah. And you thought they did a good job with that?
0: I think they did a creative job about it. I don't think a lot of the things were realistic per se, but also I don't know how those relationships work on a a physical level.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I think the tension was built well I also think they did a good job at I feel like in contemporary culture oftentimes we can hyper sexualize non-traditional relationships because for some reason there's this idea that everything is sexually driven I mean obviously sex was part of it but it wasn't to the extent where it was like too much or like unrealistic
0: yeah and I think that the element that helped us succeed was that they didn't make every scene about sexual attention right and even the sex scenes were not played up to be super risky or something of that nature. Instead, it focuses more on the relationship developing between the three people. That was a refreshing aspect instead of the typical love story or Fifty Shades of Grey where it's very obvious what's happening and it's done in these like cut shots Almost like an action sequence where you have like the whip in one hand and then in the next scene it's like a leg. And instead here it was done in such a way that kept it relatively non-sexual.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm just now thinking of Portrait of a Lady on Fire and like how overtly sexual I thought that film was. Both films were similar in the sense that there were a lot of like gazes and a lot of like looking, but here there was no underlying motivation. I also think though, this film did a really good job at bringing polyamory as like a discursive object to the forefront in a way that I haven't really seen done well in cinema before. I mean, I can't think of anything in popular culture with like a polyamorous relationship
0: yeah, I'm sure there have been some films made about it, but nothing well, yeah. that has had wide attention. Not to say that this film had wide attention either, though, because I don't think a lot of people knew about this film when it came out.
1: Well, yeah, n- and not that the film had wide attention, but that the the subject of the film, right? It was it's about this relationship. And yeah, it was to the extent that it, it made the relationship convincing. And, you know, they were able to develop or they tried to develop it organically
0: One final thing I think that is important to talk about here. Is it better for a historical film to be accurate or to be supportive and cognizant of the current times? Do you want to share what you're kind of thinking with this regard to this?
1: Yeah, I think this is a really good question to consider when we are viewing biographical films such as this one or films based on true stories because it's hard to determine. Like initially I left the... Watching the film, thinking, like, was Bill a misogynist or was he actually a feminist? Like, there were some scenes where he was framed as, like, I would interpret with my contemporary knowledge as misogynistic. For example, his authoring of Paradise Island, when he was describing it to the children's editor, he's like, it's this you know, there's Paradise Island and then there's Man's Land or Man World man's island man's island and, and it's not even called like Womanland. it's paradise island and it's created in his head of like all these women together doing things with each other and i think in some ways that could be interpreted as misogynist because he's authoring this fantasy in his head and he's basically objectifying the women but again i don't know how much you liken that to bad acting and like a bad script like a bad presentation of the idea
0: I'm going to go ahead and disagree with you here that for me, I think it's more important to be historically accurate. And I think it obviously it's dependent on the film. But here, I think it's more important to show what was actually happening during the time because the modern viewer has the ability to reason why that they believe this is a good or a bad change in the system. So from now to then, why are we doing the things that we're doing? And do they really concretely believe those things are poor? Obviously, that has the potential to further things that are from the past that are not great, such as stigmatization of those that are engaging in alternative forms of love. Uh, But I also think it in a lot of ways it tells those stories and empowers that story So that people can take an objective look for themselves and whether or not they what they truly believe Whether or not people actually reflect enough to have that thought process is something to be debated, too so maybe this comes back to even Hear me out How people view their environment and their role within (laughs) the environment? Could be could be
1: A little bit of disc theory over here.
0: Yeah, Bill Marston hit Uh, me up.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think my issue with the question is uh, how do we even define historically accurate? Like it depends on what narrative of history you're coming from. We can talk about America's genocide of the indigenous people as being historically accurate through legal action and physical force, but we can also, and that could be historically accurate, But it could also be historically accurate to say the Indian was going to disappear anyway and they were going to die off anyway. So that's what had to be done because that's what the people at the time thought. So like that's accurate to ideology at the time. Yeah. But it's also historically accurate to say, well, it was a mass genocide.
0: Yeah. For me, I'm not questioning necessarily like the accuracy of the historical account because we live in a revisionist society where history yes. accounts are very questionable based upon what government is in style and what whatnot. That all being said, I think it's taking the most accepted account and portraying it to the point that we know of it and that we've been told versus taking it and modernizing it. So changing the way certain things are depicted to make them more agreeable. Yeah. That's what I'm more referencing.
1: No, one that makes sense. And I think to the example I gave with Paradise Island, you could also say well, women weren't necessarily in I mean, after the war women were encouraged to work, but it still wasn't to the extent that men were and men were the ones that could write and get published more easily. So, of course it had to be Bill, you know, and maybe this Paradise Island idea came from Oliver Elizabeth and we don't know.
0: So, a lot of technical points uh Maybe you saw those things, maybe you didn't. Regardless, I think it's always interesting to view the decisions of the director and examine those as a methodology that can be examined when you see a film, questioning why is a shot done like this? Was it purposeful or was it just something done out of convenience or something the actors wanted done? Finally, as we always talk about, we'll move into our reviews. So, I'll start this week. One thing I think that's important to clarify here is that We're not rating the overall story. This is a true story to our knowledge. But what we're rating is the execution of what I believe the film was trying to portray. Using that framework, my overall rating would be a six. I really appreciated finding out about this new story. I had never known really about the Wonder Woman story of the inception of the comic and where it came from. But... The overall execution of the film, to me, felt very forced. It wasn't a very organic film. And while I enjoyed the subject matter, the technical aspects were very lacking to me, specifically the cliché usage of the Wonder Woman objects. Acting and the usage of disc theory seemed to convolute the meaning of the film more than clarify it. And so with those things all kind of hovering around, I felt that the technical pull-off of this film was not as good as it could have been. But overall, I really enjoyed hearing about the story, and it made me curious. And I have a lot of thoughts about it after. Not necessarily curious about what the filmmaker's intention was, but of Wonder Woman. And now, whenever I see Wonder Woman, thinking about this sub-story that is occurring with it. Yeah. I give it a six.
1: Yeah, I'd put this one at about a 6. I agree. I don't like when things are forced or obvious cuz it's really tacky to me. The acting was such a missed opportunity, especially with like the principal roles. Like Olive's acting was not very good, and neither was Bill's at most points. Again, the script, it made things kind of awkward at some points. I, and I think there was a lot of opportunity too if they're trying to center the sections of the film around dominance inducement submission and compliance use the camera to work with you like make the camera dominant like make the camera you know like make it work they didn't even try but i do think that this you know the handling of polyamory and bdsm was really well done and i think that's where the this film finds its niche Is in like the forefronting of those things. And I think, you know, a lot of my thoughts about Foucault, I think, are relevant. But I also think a lot of that was me projecting that onto the film. Like, I don't necessarily think at the end of the day, this film is about Foucault. And I think the references there, I could be extrapolating as Foucault when they were really meaning to think about Freud. So I don't know if I can give the film credit there. Unless you disagree, like, let me know. But yeah, so I kind of give it a six. Yeah. Overall.
0: Yeah. With that, I think, give Professor Marson and the Wonder Women a watch if you're interested in in an examination and exploration of the roots of Wonder Woman. Be prepared for some definitely explicit ideas, Uh, but nothing over the top and nothing, I think, that's overwhelming at any point. Next week, we'll be watching Boots Riley's first film titled sorry to bother you a satirical critique of capitalism excess and race it's a fiery film very interesting lots to talk about pretty much a what-the-fuck film in a lot of ways the first time you watch it so get ready for some twists and turns
1: yeah and drop a rating down below
0: give us a shout on on social media if you get a chance Uh, we'd really appreciate it we'll look forward to an episode in two weeks and with that that's our show